God has laid a, a word on my heart. Um, I did mention to you last week that when we looked at these three, uh, what I called spit miracles by God, yes, there were three spit miracles. Mark talks about two of them, John 1 and John 9. We didn't get into that one, but we did focus. Mark talks about spit five times. The other gospels, maybe one or two. That's it. And we saw how God uses something as disgusting as spit, disgraceful like spit in our lives. But understand, when he does this, his purpose is not to humiliate or embarrass you. He took these people aside to apply that spit, which was disgusting, even in their culture, not just ours presently, And he used this disgrace in their lives to actually bring restoration and healing so that they would be able to talk and hear and see clearly. So we we spoke about this. We spoke about uh, what Jesus' intention was. And today, I want us to not re-read these passages, but there's about six or seven of them together that we are going to look at. Um, So we are going to pretty much read the entire chapter almost of Mark 8, but I want us to see today what's Mark's intention? What's Mark trying to communicate? Because it's going to be a little different than what Matthew is trying to say and what Luke is trying to say, though they are speaking and addressing these same stories, at least somewhat, both Papias in 140 AD and Irenaeus in 185 AD said that when Mark was writing, he wrote everything accurately, though not necessarily in order, according to what he heard Peter preach. And trust me, as his traveling companion, Mark heard Peter preach these stories over and over and over and over again, and he was able to write them down accurately, though not necessarily in order. So I'm saying that because as Mark pulls these stories together, some of them are in chronological order, but not necessarily all of them, and that is okay. In in our day, historians generally have a rule. If you're going to talk about history, we want it all in in chronological order. That is just not how historians thought back then all the time, okay? Totally fine for them to address these issues but not necessarily in chronological order. Therefore, I think it's fair to come to a conclusion that when Mark, for example, is recording these stories, he is doing so with an intention that the Spirit has laid on his heart. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to read a lot, but we're going to step back, and instead of digging into verse after verse, we're going to step back. I want to see what Mark's intention is is here because we're going to glean something I believe that is going to seriously, powerfully, I pray, minister to our hearts. I can remember at age 14, I had grown up in a Christian home. My dad was a choir director. I I, I grew up in a Methodist, a Presbyterian, congregational. Um, We visited Baptist churches. My wife from an Episcopal and Nazarene. And we've kind of like touched all the bases here. And as I was 14, I'd heard about Christ, I'd heard about the gospel, but my older brother, three and a half years my senior, spoke the truth into my life, and he challenged me to become a Christian. And that really, uh, it incensed me. 
it made me resistant because he, in essence, was saying, Mike, I'm not so sure you're a Christian. And guess what? He was right. Not just that he wasn't sure, but that I wasn't. And so as I began to reflect on the gospel in those moments that I was reading this little gospel tract, am I going to heaven? I began to realize, oh my goodness, I, have, I, I believe these facts, but I have never really surrendered my heart to Christ. So at age 14, I, got so, I, I, I started following Jesus. At age 16, I heard something about the baptism in the Spirit, and being filled with the Spirit, and, and, and I had heard testimonies, and I said, God, this is what I desire in my life. Now, God had placed a desire in my heart to evangelize, and I did it maybe two or three times a year. When God visited me in, in, in really in my bedroom in a very powerful way, that summer I turned 16, when I went back to school, it wasn't two or three times a year, it turned into two or three times a day. Something had taken a hold of my heart. I didn't get converted at age 16. Truly, that had happened two years prior, but God filled me with my spirit. As I read through Acts, I said, this is what happened to me. And I began to boldly witness in my high school, the last two years, 11th and 12th, public school system, waited a year, worked at a McDonald's and raked in big bucks. Yeah. (laughs) And then I went to... Covenant College for a year and a half, ran out of money, and then went to a public school system. Within a month, met my future wife, awesome, but God began to provide even more and more opportunities to witness, and I was plugged into a a strong spiritual church family support system, and yet plenty of opportunities to witness. I was majoring in psychology. I don't necessarily recommend that, uh, at least for what I wanted God to use it in my life, but it was fine. I'm sharing this with you because when I became a senior, it was about that time, understand I was a commuter, so it was 25 minutes either way. When I was done with my school, had an opportunity to do some homework, hang out with Meredith, and on my way home, it was night after night after night, I began to become plagued with doubts. Serious questions. And it brought a lot of confusion. How do I really know that there is a God? Even though God had been racking up testimonies in my life and and seeing how he was working in this person and that person, even in my own life, et cetera, how God had provided. And yet I began having these nagging questions. How do I really know that Jesus is who he said he is? How can I know for sure that I can trust this Bible? How do I even know that my conversion was genuine and that it wasn't just some psychological manipulation from my brother and life itself and the Bible and what can I truly trust? So all of these questions began plaguing me. Gang, it, it was night after night after night on my way home from five days a week I went to school. And finally, I, I talked with Meredith. Uh, and we were, uh, I believe that we were um, engaged at that point. And she said, Mike, I've got a, I got a great book for you. Now, she, I, this was culminated in a talk with her uncle, who was an atheist. And he even asked the bold question, how do you even know that Jesus lived? Now, there's about 0.1% of historians that are willing to ask that question and believe that he didn't just to put that in perspective, by the way. That was the first time, though, that I'd ever asked 
that I'd ever been asked. Like, of course he was. Because, and, but I didn't know why necessarily, except I read it in the Gospels. And my wife pointed me to a certain book, Why I Believe, by Dr. James Kennedy. And I read through that book, and I stepped back when I was done, and I, my jaw just dropped. I said, I had no idea that there was so much evidence for the Christian faith. As I was reading this book, understand God was answering a lot of questions that I had. But what ended up happening was not only was I becoming more settled in my faith, but faith, understand, is more than just being certain of what is truth, that the facts, it is believing the very character qualities of God himself. And so I'm saying this with you because as you go through, and, and gen, that was not necessarily a, a, an emotional hard time for me. There was no circumstance that I was going through. I didn't lose a loved one at that time that caused me to doubt God, though many of us do. Our circumstances are different, but understand this. Here is Satan's goal. For me, it was step one, questions. Step two, doubt God. Step three, let's incorporate some anger here or hurt or fear. Where was I? Step three? Step four, doubt God more and eventually walk away. This is the pattern that has been played out in many people this past summer. There were two well-known people, I won't mention their name, in the public eye and with their doubts, excuse me, with their questions arose doubts and with their doubts, they walked away from God. As we go through life circumstances, church, understand this is Satan's goal. His goal is in your questions to doubt and in your doubt to eventually walk away. Hurt, angry, filled with fear, but not looking to God anymore. Now, maybe some of you are in that journey somewhere in there, but understand where the enemy wants to take you. He is a deceiver. Lies are his native language. And that's the road that he wants to take you down. How do we fight this battle? How do we win? Do we just not ask the questions? I'm going to tell you right now, that's not the answer. The answer is not not asking questions. Does that make sense? The answer is, is a lot deeper. Mark actually answers that question for us. He takes a lot, uh, several different stories that I'm going to read to you right now. And we're, we're not going to analyze it deeply. We're going to step back and look at each one and see what he is now saying to us as, we, as it culminates at the end of the chapter. So are you ready? Right here in Mark chapter 8. The name of the title of the sermon is The Voice of Doubt. And I realize, before I read, I realize that it has become rather popular, believe it or not, to glorify doubt in the church. It's because pastors preach about it. They, they exalt doubt. Doubt is a good thing. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, doubt is not a good thing. Questions are a good thing. Doubt is not. Now, maybe these pastors are not defining their terms well enough. I don't know. But I'm going to just tell you right now, doubt opposes faith all the time. Questions, not necessarily. Questions is seeking answers. And we all need to do this. 
God is not threatened by the toughest question that you have. So how do we resolve this doubt? We're going to want to look at that. So here we are. Are you ready? Mark chapter 8. I really am going to start this time. During those days, this, excuse me, by the way, is right after Jesus healed the man who was deaf and could not speak clearly, mute. He could say things, but they were unintelligible. Jesus used spit to heal him. And when people saw this, they, when they saw that he could speak because Jesus had pulled him aside, they were amazed and they said, Jesus does all things well. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. Can you underline just that word compassion? We're going to come back to that. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. See, in Matthew, he says he had been healing all of these people day after day after day and teaching. And now finally, being with them three days, they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Now understand, this is not the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 4,000. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave, them, he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, excuse me, afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to a reg the region of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha is very likely in an area maybe four miles long. It's a plateau on the east-west side, excuse me, of the Sea of Galilee, Magadan or Magdala. You know, Mary Magdalene uh, was from that region. Uh, that's very well probably a portion of that, but it is very close to Capernaum, Jesus' hometown. And that's where this is all taking place. So he gets into a boat and he crosses. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. 
He said to them, do you still not understand? Jesus, by the way, does not always give the clear answers we're looking for. But he gives us enough. They needed to think about this. They came to Bethsaida, which is at the very tippy top north of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Now, I've read that story last week, so I'm going to skip down to verse 27. He healed him with spit, by the way. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is further north of the Sea of Galilee. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. So apparently one of them had been resurrected. That's their idea. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke God. Okay, it says he rebuked him, but you get my point. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called to the crowd, <clears throat> excuse me, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? yet forfeit his soul. I'm going to stop right there. <clears throat> I want us to see there are actually three sections to this that we're going to look at. And again, we're going to look at them briefly because we're looking at the overarching, premise, the overarching intention of Mark and what he's trying to say. Number one, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And the focus here is Jesus' compassion. We're, we get a, uh, a, a, a glimpse into the character of who Jesus is. Remember, Yahweh declared from the mountaintop of Sinai, I am the gracious, compassionate God. Compassion really resonated with the Jews. I have compassion for these people. Obviously, we're going to come back to that. The second thing is what I'm going to call the pivotal story here. And that is after he crosses the, the sea, the Pharisees ask him, a, they, they demand from him a sign, asking him questions, trying to lure him, test him. Their attitude is wrong. They're not truly seeking truth. They're wanting to stump him. And then when Jesus gets into the boat, he, he labels what they did, yeast the yeast of the Pharisees, and the focus there is, do you understand what I'm even talking about? Because you're going off way over here. No, 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 no. Do you understand? Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. That's pivotal. We're going to look at that. And then he concludes with an answer to the Pharisees' questions of, who are you? Show us your authority by some sign from heaven. 
and Jesus answers that. So Mark puts these together to teach us something. So let's look at this. The first thing that we see is Jesus is now in a situation where for three days he has been teaching and healing. Very possibly, this is the situation in which he healed the man who was both deaf and could not speak. We don't know for sure, um, but very possibly. And in the midst of all of this, people coming from all over the region, they're in a remote place. They would have to travel for several miles to get food. And they probably didn't have money on them. They did not expect being with Jesus these three days, no doubt. And so there's, they, he's afraid that if I send them away, they're going to faint on their way back home. And it said, Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. So what was his goal? His goal was to do a miracle that would provide for them until they got home. I can only imagine for some of them, they would have loved for Jesus to provide for them even after they got home, right? You know, when we begin to look and we're praying uh, to the Lord and we're asking him for certain things, we can get very specific, no problem with that, but many times we are saying, God, I want you to so abundantly provide. I don't have to worry. I don't have to, I don't have to exercise faith. You just pour out in abundance. And you know what? Sometimes God does that. It's amazing. It's beautiful. But generally what God does is gives us our daily bread. Because the next day we have to walk in faith again for him to provide that daily bread. And the next day we have to exercise faith again. Can I be really honest with you? I'm not a real big risk taker. I mean, I can be, but I like things nice and neat. Some of my kids were infected by that from me. Um, I pity them, but they like everything in order. I remember when Kate was, as a three-year-old, was putting, she had lots of shoes. Some of them were too large for her. Some of them were too small for her. Some of them just fit. And her mom said, clean up your room, clean up your closet. Because you know what kids do when they clean up the room. Where does everything go? Into the closet. So it's time to clean the closet. So she's organizing everything. And at three years old, she put them from smallest shoe to largest shoe. And we stepped back in horror and said, whoa. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then Meredith looked at me and said, it's all your fault. <laughs> but the truth is, yeah, it is my fault. She inherited that gene from me. And I, I like things organized. I like things planned. It reduces the risk. It reduces possibility of failure. And, but it tries to exclude faith. See, if you can get rid of risk, there's no need for faith. You know, God, if you provide all of my needs for the rest of my life, if you do it today, if you give me a million dollars, if I win the lottery, well, whatever, then I won't have to worry about anything. That is rarely how God will provide. That's what we want, but God provides our daily bread. So in his compassion, he provided enough so that they could make it home. Now, I'm, I'm saying this because many times when we begin to wrestle with God, it's not, it's not so much that he hasn't provided for my needs up to this very second, because guess what? I just took a breath. That means I'm alive. I'm concerned about the rest of the day or tomorrow or next week, and am I going to be able to pay my bills? 
But as of today, I'm okay. God has provided. But we're constantly worrying about the future. And God has challenged us in numerous places. I'm the God of compassion. I will take care of your needs. Can you trust me? And so there is an amazing display of the compassion of Christ by feeding the 4,000. He comes back to that in this section when they're on the boat. I'll get there, though, in just a moment. Here's what I'd like you to do before I move to section two. I, I, want, you, I want to ask you this question. Has Jesus been compassionate to you in 2019? Has he been compassionate to you? Then if you're saying yes, I want you to demonstrate that. And I want you to take your pen in your hand and on the back of your bulletin where it says sermon notes, I want you to write down at least one thing in which Jesus showed compassion to you. If Jesus was compassionate to you, write down an example. Now let's be honest. Some of us right now are struggling to think of a good example of Jesus' compassion. And I'm not going to blame you. I'm not throwing you under the bus right now. But generally why that is, is because we're in the process of wrestling with God today. We're asking questions. God, I remember when I prayed and, and, and you did this, and I don't understand and I don't understand why these circumstances, I tried so hard to follow you, and yet this happened in my life, in my family's life, in my business. I, I don't understand it, and there is an anger or a hurt that is being produced, a fear. Maybe he's not going to come through the next time, because eventually God did come through. He didn't come through the way you wanted to, him to. And as a result, it is hard for us right now to really think of a time in which Jesus was compassionate to us. That's fair. Questions are fair. But when we come to the second section and the Pharisees are asking Jesus questions, let's understand why they're asking these questions. If we were to go all the way back to chapter 2 and 3 of Mark, they were super ticked off because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He healed a withered man's hand. He healed on the Sabbath, and they said, Jesus, you're breaking the Sabbath, so how can you be from God? And they sought ways to destroy Jesus. They were angry with him. They felt that maybe he was a cult leader, but there was, he's still doing miracles. So now... They want a very specific type of miracle. What type of miracle? Do you read in your scriptures? What, what type? A sign from heaven. From heaven. Now, maybe they heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and just very recently feeding the 4,000. We don't know Jesus. They were on the other side of the lake. Maybe the word got back to them. But they did see with their own eyes some of these miracles. And they want to test him. Do you see their heart? See, it's okay to ask Jesus questions, but they wanted to test him. They wanted to trap him. Their intentions were evil. They were angry with him. Jesus had, in the chapter prior to this, chapter seven, Jesus had rebuked them. Do you remember what he said? 
you follow the traditions of your elders to the point where you break the commands of God. They're angry. Some of them, maybe that touched home really close and they're hurt. Maybe they're wrestling because now they're wrestling with guilt because Jesus is right and they hate that. Sometimes when the scriptures speak to your heart, don't you hate it? Because it's right and it's pegging you and it's like, oh man, I've got to apologize to this person and I don't want to. I've got to forgive them and they don't deserve it, right? And and when we're challenged by the word of God and he he begins to speak to us, you're holding a grudge. You mean I've got to let that go? I knew I shouldn't have read the word this morning, right? I'm just being honest with you. And and we get frustrated with God. We can get hurt. We can get disappointed. We can begin filled with fear. But there are all of these emotions churning within us. And it's fine to ask the questions, but now the Pharisees are asking the questions with the wrong intent. And see, here's what's going to happen. When you start asking these questions, and when I was 20, when I started asking those, I'd known the Lord for six years, and I was following hard after him questions. Where are these questions coming from? If I wasn't careful, I would start asking questions or could ask questions in which, God, why didn't you come through here and here? And I'm really hurt and disappointed. And you know what, God? I'm not just disappointed. I'm now angry because of what happened here. And before I know it, I am filled with doubt that is undermining this faith in Jesus Christ, this relationship with the Lord. And if I'm not careful, he is now, Satan's gonna take me down this road of abandoning the Lord. And I've seen this happen so many times, church. Don't let that be you. It's good to ask questions, but never glorify doubt. I am surprised at how some of these pastors today, online, on TV, doubt is good. It's fine to doubt God. He doesn't feel challenged by your doubt. Well, the last time I read in my Bible, it says, if you doubt in your heart, you will not receive what you've asked for, James 1. Doubt is a problem. Questions are not. When we start asking our questions with hurt and anger, we are stepping into doubt. That's the fuel of doubt. That's the fuel of doubt that begins to move us further away. Here is the amazing thing of our redeeming God. He understands that weakness that you're going through right now. He not only understands the questions, and by the way, has answers, but he understands the emotion and the hurt that you're leaning on right now. That's fueling these questions and these doubts. He understands that. And he can actually step into your life and begin to change that heart so that, guess what? This is the amazing thing God loves to do. He loves to take what Satan is doing to undermine you and actually turn it around completely to become a strength, to become a platform from which to launch this amazing faith but that doesn't make doubt right. I'm just saying that God is able to redeem that situation, redeem this difficult time you're going through so that it pushes you, presses you into Jesus even more. So that when you, when you emerge from it, you are sloughing off the 
those emotions and you're grounding yourself in truth. And when you come out, your faith is so much stronger. Why? Because you doubted? No, because you were willing to ask the questions. You got caught up in doubt. You cried out to God and he rescued you from your doubt. Okay? So theologically, we must get this right. Otherwise, we're going to feel fine. It's a good thing for me to doubt. And you're going to start doubting and doubting. And if you're not careful, you will walk away from God. That's not glorified doubt. Questions, ask him, press in. But if you're doubting today, I'm not here to point the finger at you. If you're doubting today, let God redeem that. How can he? Mark tells us. He tells us. So when Jesus climbs aboard the boat and they have only one loaf of bread, he, he tries to use an analogy here, bread, yeast. Okay, so guys, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. What is the yeast? <clears throat> Excuse me, what is the yeast that he is talking about? He's not talking about literal yeast, <laughs> though the disciples thought that he was. Okay, so I guess if, the, if I ever encounter a Pharisee that's selling me yeast, don't buy it. And Jesus did one of these, Oy vey, Father, rescue me. Okay, all right. Let's talk about this, Jesus is saying. Um, I'm not talking about literal yeast, but here's what yeast does. Yeast is so small. It's got to be used properly to work, but it will, when you knead it into the dough, it impacts affects every aspect of that dough. And not just a little bit here and there, the entire lump. The concept of yeast is used both in a positive way in scriptures, but also a negative way. Here, Jesus is using it in a negative way. He is in essence saying, guys, I just did an amazing miracle in feeding the 4,000 to demonstrate my compassion. The Pharisees want to cast doubt on that. They want me to pull out my credentials and prove who I am. And I want to tell you, I am the God of compassion. But the Pharisees can't accept that because they doubt me because they're filled with anger and hurts, fear, whatever. That's controlling them. And they are going, this doubt that they have will become like yeast in your life. If you listen to them, they will make you doubt me. They will make you doubt the goodness of God. They will make you even doubt the very miracles and intentions of those, behind those miracles that, I, that I've performed. Is this not the case in your own life? It, I know it has been in my life. God has built a marvelous track record of, of coming through at, at the 11th hour, 59th minute in my life. I don't know why God chooses to do that. I imagine he's done that much in your life, but God has come through so many times, and yet I will regularly come to a point and question God. Are you going to come through? Because if you don't, oh, Mike, can you trust me? I shared this story with you before. I was at the end of the month and I needed a certain amount from the business that day to be able to pay the bills. And I'm walking through and we rode up like three cars, not nearly enough. And I'm looking at Mike. This is when Mike used to work for me. I said, Mike, I don't understand. And I just began to rant. I'm not a ranter. I began to rant though at that moment. And Mike, when I took a breath, he jumped in, right? 
<clears throat> and he said, but Mike, um, last month, did God provide? For, and he's really trying to be great. Did God provide for you? And I said, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yes, he did. And the month before that, when you were in the same situation, just like this, did God provide? And he was so gracious. And I said, yes, he did. Mike, I get your point. <laughs> and so he said, Mike, let's just pray. And here is, here is the, the, the one I'm discipling, leading his pastor now, because I'm wrestling with God in faith. And so he, he prays, and then faith is stirred up in me, and I pray. And, and you remember the story. I go in, and, and they look at it and said, fine, but Mike, did you see the three cars out in the, the, the service drive? Because I need work done on them. And... I looked at those cars, it added like five times the amount of work that I had just gotten, dollars-wise. And I walked in, and I calculated, and it was exactly what I needed for that month. And I just said, Mike, God is so good. He's compassionate. But we all go through, even though God has done so many miracles, we still question him, right? We still do. But in this questioning, it forces us to press in and to latch a hold of the truth of who God is in our lives, and we have to revisit these truths over and over and over again, church. And so that's what the, 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 the Pharisees were casting doubt on all of that. How are the disciples going to come through? Now, they shouldn't have questioned, oh, you know what, uh, Jesus is upset because we didn't bring enough bread. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, I'm paraphrasing here, guys, really? What did I just do? Not just for 12, but 4,000 plus women and children. And how many extra baskets did you have? Oh, seven extra baskets of leftovers. Can I not provide in superabundance? Because we have only one loaf, are you really worried? Seriously? That is nothing. That is a crumb from the master's table. You remember. And so Jesus concludes with, do you not understand? I will always take care of you. Why would you even doubt that? So do you, would, you would think that maybe I'm upset that you didn't bring enough bread. I can provide. It's not a big deal. This is pivotal. These two stories back-to-back -back are pivotal. This now leads us to the answer. He gives us, interestingly enough, an illustration, a real-life illustration of his point in the very next story. It's a spit miracle, yes. But the first time he applies the spit to the man's eyes, he does not see clearly. The second time, he does. And there are times in which we are content with half an answer from God. I'm going to encourage you, go the whole way. Ask him. Press in. Don't get angry with him. Don't shake your fist at him. I understand that can happen. Let God minister to your emotions, your anger, fears, whatever. But don't be afraid to ask God these questions, but keep pressing in for the answer because God wants to give it. God wants to provide in super abundance. God hates doing things halfway. He won't do it. If you'll allow him by faith, he will come in and do all things well. That's how chapter 7 ended, if you remember. Jesus does all things well. So he gives us an illustration of seeing clearly. 
Jesus' question on the boat was, do you not see? Do you have eyes but can't see? In other words, don't you understand this? So he gives us an illustration. Now let me tackle these last two sections. He then asks, who do men say that I am? See, this is really getting at the core of what the Pharisees are stirring up. This church gets at the core of the doubts that you have, of the questions that you have. When I was 20 and I was asking these questions, who is Jesus really? Was he just a man with some really good answers? And over time, they kind of got embellished. You know, Jesus didn't necessarily rise from the dead, but (laughs) maybe his body got stolen or who knows what happened, but the story got embellished and now he bodily rose from the dead. I, I, and, and, and these questions were coming to me, and, and I, I wanted solid answers, and so I began to press into God. But the result was that he refined my faith. For some reason, God has chosen to present circumstances to me that puts my back up against the wall when I am fighting and fighting, and I have to And eventually, in the struggle, yield and just say, okay, God, have it your way. You know my heart, but I am choosing right now to rest in you because I know who Jesus is. See, Jesus is that compassionate God. So who do men say? Who does the world say that I am? Oh, they think you're this. They think you're that. That totally wrong. And so Jesus asked them, so guys, be honest with me, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. Now, intellectually, he was spot on. But what does that mean? You can tell me Jesus is Lord. Yes, he is. But what does that mean in your life? If Jesus is really Lord, that means he's the commander. That means he is sovereign over everything that he has created. He has created. Jesus created all things. He is the Lord. He's the sovereign. He is the one who rules over everything he's created. And if that's the case, and you're struggling with paying a few bills at the end of the month, do you not think that he can provide? Who is he? So Peter's answer, you are the Christ, was good, but Jesus wanted to develop that a little bit. And that's where we're going to bring full full circle here to what Mark wants us to grasp. Jesus then, after declaring, who who am I? And Peter said, the Christ. Jesus, in essence, says, I'm going to fill in the blanks. Because you have this understanding of the Christ, the Messiah, that's not really exactly correct. So here's what's going to happen, guys. I, the one who just fed 5,000 and now 4,000, who opened the eyes of the blind, caused the, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, me, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be turned over to the leaders. They're going to crucify me. I will suffer, and then I will rise again. The Pharisees wanted a sign from heaven. What would that have meant? I'm backtracking just a little bit. Would that mean that the sun is darkened? Would that mean that the moon 
in the heavens would turn red? Would that mean that there would be an earthquake so that graves would rip open and people would be risen from the dead? Is this what you're really asking for? Jesus could have asked that. And then his response would have been, oh, you just wait, because that's exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't word it that way. He says to his disciples, I'm going to die. In essence, it's going to take you all surprise by surprise. I understand this. I'm letting you know right now, I'm going to die. They're going to crucify me, but I will rise again. They didn't understand exactly what he meant by rise again. And Peter, because he has a very different view of the Christ, he says, no, no, you're not. You will not die, Jesus. And he rebukes God to his face. He really took a scary stance, went out on a limb, and then Jesus rebukes him by saying, get behind me, Satan. Let me just tell you this. God has a plan. When it doesn't work out according to our plan, we get confused, we ask questions, we get hurt, we begin to doubt, and we begin to move away. And we need to realize that God's purposes are so intricate, so beyond our understanding, we must come to this place where we do not get in the face of God and say, no, you won't. You're going to do it my way. But how many times do we do that? God, you know what? You're not doing it my way, and I'm really getting it ticked off at you. Be honest. We do this, and it fuels our doubts. So Jesus addresses that. Get behind me, Satan. He knows where these, this wrong purpose, this Peter is clueless with regard to what Jesus is trying to do. What is Jesus trying to do? Why is Jesus getting into the ultimate purpose of his life here on earth? Because Jesus, let me find my Because Jesus has an ultimate plan that his disciples do not get. And I'm going to just tell you right now, when you're facing these trials and you're asking the good questions, Jesus has an overarching plan that you may not understand. Why on earth, now stepping back into the story, why on earth would Jesus have to die on the cross? You know what? Jesus doesn't tell us the why. If you were to look at it, he doesn't tell us the why. And don't be surprised if he doesn't tell you the why. He'll give you hints. Jesus said, I didn't come to save or to heal the healthy, but I came as a ransom for many to save the lost. Jesus said, excuse me, the, the angel said about Jesus, to Joseph, you'll call him his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, these are snapshots of the very purpose of Jesus' life and the, the ultimate goal of suffering on the cross and resurrection. And we see some of these. John records that John the Baptist said, pointing to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus does not sit down with his disciples and say, okay, guys, let me give you a full-blown soteriology of who I am and what my purposes are and how the cross is going to wash away your... He doesn't do that. 
And some of us, we want the full answer right now, God. But let me just tell you this, that even though you read Romans, you read other places through the book of Acts, there is a much fuller explanation and they didn't get it then. Here's what happened. The cross was the worst, most heinous sin ever perpetrated by men, ever. The killing of God himself. There is no greater sin. And yet God was able to take that and turn it around for the greatest good ever for mankind, those who killed him. This is, a, this is the most amazing picture of the redemption of God. This is far more amazing than the Old Testament picture that we get of the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. The cross was the ultimate victory. See, the, 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 the exodus looked to that. It was like a mirror. It was a, it was a shadow pointing to the cross. But the cross and the resurrection it was the most was the greatest picture and act of God's redemption. And if God can do that, if God can allow his son to die, but raise him from the dead so that all of our sins are forgiven because the, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And by, by his resurrection, impart new life to us and raise us spiritually and at the end of the age, raising our bodies, God can take your little situation, I don't mean to demean it, but take your little situation that you're going through that's creating all of these questions and even doubts, he's able to turn that around with ease for with such glory to his name. You know what he says? You may not get this right now, but I am gonna die and be raised from the dead. And then he brings it home with this. He says, concluding, he says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what's your goal in life? What's your plan? What do you really want? I'd like a million dollars to provide for my, provide for my family. I'd like a vacation every year. I'd like two cars. I'd like exactly three kids. I would, and we have this wish list that we offer up to God that many times God, I can only imagine, chuckles, but he says, can you be satisfied with my greatest good that I have for you? Because right now, you're doubting my compassion because I'm not giving you all your toys. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to demean the hard time you're going through, but can you see the bigger picture and if God can turn around the crucifixion to raise Jesus from the dead and rescue billions of people from their sin, God can take your little situation and turn it around with ease. But what is our goal? Is it the comfy life? You know what, church? I'm going to be honest with you. I like the comfy life. I like the financial end of it. I, I, I like not having to wake up in the morning and pray that God would provide for my breakfast. And before lunchtime, pray that God would provide for our lunch. You see, this is what George Mueller had to do. That would be hard for me. But George Mueller was an amazing man of God, an amazing man of faith. I want that, though. 
And that means I've got to be okay if God takes me away, takes the comfy life from me. What's his answer? Deny self. Take up your cross and follow me because that is all that truly matters. I understand you want all these things and I'm going to be blessing you with some of those. But you know what? In all of your questions, come down to this one fact, that God is the God of compassion. Compassion is not just a sacrificial, emotionless love. Compassion is that love that's willing to lay down his life. It's emotional. It connects relationally. It aches for those in need. We saw this in Jesus. Like Jesus wants to do this for you. He wants to bring you through this wilderness experience in which you have so many questions. He wants to pull you out of the doubt. He wants to bring you to this place where you are settled that no matter what happens in my life, I will find my complete satisfaction in you as I deny self, take up my cross, and follow you. That is the life that Jesus has called us to. And we wrestle with that sometimes. But to follow him means that he has got to allow some of these hard things to refine that faith so that you ask the questions so that he can lead you further and show you just how compassionate he is. The cross and the resurrection is the answer to all of our doubts. It truly is. Can you stand with me, church? As we pray, I, I really encourage you to be honest with the Lord in where you're at right now, to be honest with him concerning your questions, even your doubts. Because if we're going to hide those, and we're going to refuse to recognize where we're at, how can he truly deliver us? How can he lead us to the high ground? And so as we pray, I'm going to just spend, I'm going to allow you to really seek God right now. If we could kill the lights and, and just be willing to ask him those hard questions. Be willing to allow him to lead you to that place of restoration, of understanding his purposes, that they are always good whether you see it or not. So Father, we just come before you right now. We've got questions, God. We all do. And as we look back at 2019, I've got questions, God. And you may choose to answer them now or you may choose to answer them later or even much, much later. But here's what I'm going to choose to do today to believe that you are good. To believe that you are not against me. To believe that in all of those horrible things that happened last year, you didn't abandon me. Though I may not have seen you, you were behind the scenes orchestrating things to in some way redeem, turn these things around to bring such glory to your name. I, I just 
cannot completely understand it. Can't wrap my mind around it. But this is who you are, God. Father, rescue us from that yeast of the Pharisees that wants to doubt you, get angry with you, shake our fists in your face, and walk away. Rescue us from that, God. Some of us last year on our faces, we wept before you because we could not understand and our hearts were filled with so much doubt and so much anger. But in your goodness and in your patience with us, you pulled us out. I just ask you, Father, settle our hearts right now before you. Lead us to you, God, the gracious and compassionate God who extends his love to those that follow him to a thousand generations. That is who you are, and that's who you are in my life today. I yield to that God, and I settle my heart before you in that truth. You Jesus' name we pray.